Welcome to Dinosaur George Kids. A show for anyone who loves dinosaurs. Dinosaur George has studied paleontology for over 50 years and has performed live to over 4 million students across the world. So sit back and enjoy today's show. Now, here's Dinosaur George. Future paleontologist. I'm Dinosaur George. Welcome to the show. This is podcast number 73. Just a quick reminder on October 29th and 30th of the year 2022, which is this year. If you live in or around San Antonio, Texas, or if you're going to be in or around San Antonio, Texas, On October 29th and 30th, we are having our Megalodon event. And what is that? Well, that's where I'm setting up the jaws of a Megalodon shark and letting anyone stand in them and take a picture. So it's really kind of a cool event. Now, I want to say something that's really super cool about this event. The folks out at Trader's Village have decided to make it even more fun. They're bringing out a professional photographer who will take your picture, print it, and put it in a small frame to commemorate the event, and they'll do it completely free of charge. Totally free. Yes, of course, your parents can take a picture or anybody, your friends or your family. This isn't limited to children. But um, you are allowed, of course, they can take a picture of you standing in the jaws, but this, uh, the folks at Trader's Village are going to have a photographer out there who will take a picture, print it, and give it to you totally free of charge. Now, along with this Megalodon event, I'm also taking out my podcasting recording equipment out there. And you can take your picture inside the jaws of Megalodon, and then you can come over and have a seat. And um, I'll let you be on a podcast. So if you'd like to hear your voice on a podcast heard by people all over the world, this is your opportunity. Now, because we don't know what to expect, we're putting some rules in place for the podcasting part. And that is that you are allowed to ask two questions. And if you would like, you can ask a who would win question. This time, you don't have to be a T-Rex Club member to ask a who would win. Normally, those are the only people that I answer who would wins because they pay a monthly fee. So they get something special. So, um, but anybody can. I suggest that if you're going to come. You write your questions down. I know you might think you can remember them, and maybe you can. Maybe you can remember the questions, but if there's a lot of people, sometimes things get very distracting, and you might forget what you wanted to ask. So I would recommend you write your two questions down, and if you want to ask a who would win, you can. Now, if there's not a lot of people there, I might ask you more questions. I might ask you some questions. So we'll just kind of see how it works. But just to make sure everybody understands, each person gets to ask two questions. It can be anything to do with paleontology. It doesn't have to be about dinosaurs. It can be about fossil hunting. It can be maybe you want to bring some of your fossils and show me. But you get to ask two questions, one who would win. All right, another quick thing. My website, our store is being added back to our website. Now, we're not putting toys on it. We're only putting fossils right now. Maybe in the future, we'll add toys. But if you're interested in fossils, you'll see fossils from a couple of dollars all the way up to $1,000. 
But you can go to my store at dinosaurgeorge.com and just click on the store at the top of the uh, at the menu. Click on store and you can see some of those things. And we ship worldwide now. All right. We're at five hundred and five thousand four hundred and seventy downloads of this podcast, which is very exciting. And we're now heard in one hundred and sixty one countries around the world. We were stuck at 160 for a very long time, but now I don't know where the new country is or who's listening in it, but thank you. So we're listened to in 161 countries and we are heard in 11,569 cities throughout the world. So thank you all very much for being listeners. A couple of shout outs. Uh, first one goes to my good friend, Tori. Now I've watched Tori grow up. She was a tiny little kid. She used to come in back when I had a store in another location I'll never forget, Tori, I was doing a, a, a presentation for this room full of kids, and all of a sudden, this little girl just appears out of nowhere, and she starts telling me everything she knows about dinosaurs. Well, that happened to be Tori. And her mom was like, Tori, please sit down. And everybody in the room was just laughing, because this little kid just started chattering away. And it was the cutest thing you've ever seen. Well, Tori has now grown up to be just this beautiful young adult, and I'm so proud of you, Tori. And happy birthday to you. And hey... Tori came by my store on Sunday. I happened to be there Sunday just at the time she was there. And uh, uh, she came in and bought this uh, Velociraptor skull replica. That's such a cool replica. And I, I appreciate that you got it, Tori, and I hope you like it. And your collection is growing to be gigantic. I also wanted to give a shout out to all of the students at Archgate Montessori Academy in Plano, Texas. My crew and I were up there with our traveling museum uh, last week, and we got to see so many uh, young people and uh, thank you all. You guys have a great campus. Thank you. Uh, this week, we are leaving. As a matter of fact, we're leaving the minute I finish this podcast. Our first stop is going to be at Wood Creek Elementary in Katy, Texas. That's going to be on the 18th. Then we're going to be at Long, Long Branch Elementary in Mithlothian, Texas. That's going to be on the 20th. Then on the weekend, the 22nd and 23rd, we are going to be in McAllen, Texas for the Fiesta de Palmas event. That uh, we're taking our traveling museum there. And then on Tuesday, the 25th, we are going to be at Gilmer Elementary in Gilmer, Texas, again, with our traveling museum. Now, if any of you are in those schools are going to be at that event on the 22nd and 23rd in McAllen, Texas, please come up. Let me know you're a listener so I can get your name and I can give you a shout out. Okay. All right. Let's learn about today's feature creature. It's time for our feature creature segment. If you would like to suggest a creature, go to the Dinosaur George Kids podcast page at dinosaurgeorge.com or post your suggestion on the Dinosaur George Kids Facebook group page. Now, here is your feature creature. We're going way, way back to the late Triassic for today's feature creature. It happens to be an animal called Postosuchus. Now, there's a place in Texas called Post, Texas. As a matter of fact, my traveling museum was in Post, Texas, which was very exciting. Uh, or no, I'm sorry. I spoke at the library in Post, Texas. So I went there with my, I, I went and just did a, just did a talk at, in Post, Texas. Postosuchus means the crocodile from Post. And that name is a little misleading because Postosuchus is not actually a crocodile, but it is an animal that is related to crocodiles and has some kind of sort of crocodilian-like features to it. 
It's a relatively big animal. In fact, at the time, it was the top predator of its time. It was between five to six meters long. That's 16 to 20 feet long. That's longer than most vehicles or cars or trucks that your parents may drive. It weighed 900 pounds. That's 450 kilograms. That's a big animal. It lived in North Texas, but it probably also lived in Oklahoma, New Mexico, Colorado. It uh, probably lived in all of the surrounding areas. Now, it lived during the late Triassic period. That's 221 to about 203 million years ago. Now, at its time, it's the biggest, baddest dude on land. It's a very terrifying animal. It is a carnivore. And, and, and by the way, I'm doing post Tasukas today because my friend Tori requested it. And Tori asked me an interesting question. Um, she said, if you eat eggs, does that, does that make you a carnivore? Which is a great question. Yeah, carnivore is sort of a term that covers anything like insects, fish, eggs. Um, you can eat lizards, you can eat snakes, you can eat meat. It all kind of falls under the thing of carnivore. So when you say carnivore, like like Spinosaurus is considered a carnivore. Now, if there is an animal that only eats one type of food, then it could be like, for instance, anteaters are considered insectivores. They're not eating a variety of food. They're only eating one thing. Um, Spinosaurus is not, does not only eat fish. It eats anything else it could catch. If it only ate fish, then it would be considered a piscivore. But uh, Postosuchus is a carnivore, meaning it eats anything it can catch. Now, this animal is bipedal and quadrupedal, meaning it could walk on two legs or four. It lived in subtropical environment. Now, it lived up in the northern part of Texas, up in what we call the panhandle of Texas, in an area known as the Red Beds. If you've ever heard the Texas Red Beds, what that means is there is a layer of dirt that's exposed up in the panhandle that is made up of this red colored dirt. That's from oxidation. That's from a tremendous amount of sunlight beating down on it and literally causes the dirt to turn red, which I know sounds crazy, but that's what it is. Well, that's what the environment looks like now. But when this animal was alive, it was subtropic, meaning there was lots of plants and ferns and broadleaf trees, and it probably rained a lot. And it sort of kind of looked like a little bit like a rainforest, not completely like a rainforest, but sort of like one. But here's the problem with the oxidation because the oxidation of the environment was so strong, it kind of sort of cooked away the plant fossils. You don't find a lot of plant fossils. Plant fossils are very important because they help us understand the environment. You know, when somebody says this animal lived where it, was, where it snowed, you might ask, well, how do you know that? Didn't the snow melt? Yes, it did. But only certain kind of plants can live in a place that's both hot and snowy. And so you go to the deserts of, of, let's say, the deserts in Africa today or the deserts in Mongolia or the deserts in North America. You're only going to find certain kind of plants that can live there. Well, if somebody comes along a million years from now and finds those fossilized plants, they can say, hey, this used to be a desert. How do I know? Because the plants tell me. So in the case of Postosuchus, it's hard to really understand the nature of the environment, because so much of the plant information has been eliminated. 
you don't find a lot of plant fossils and therefore it makes it kind of hard. There are still enough to have an understanding of what it looks like. You know, you do, they do find evidence that water was running a lot because of ancient riverbeds shows that they were running with water a lot, or you do find some plants, but just not a lot. But from what the plants are that they found, it suggests Postasuchus is not living in a desert. It is living in more of a subtropical environment. At its time, it was absolutely the top predator. What made this thing so incredible is it had body armor. Body armor, uh, uh, the scientific term for body armor is usually osteoderms. What those are is, is sort of like hardened pieces of skin that are sort of stuck in the, the skin of the animal. Like Ankylosaurus has them. Gastonia has them. These are pieces of body armor that make it very difficult for another animal to bite through them. Like if you look at the back of a modern alligator or crocodile, those are osteoderms. They look like, like ridges and they are body armor but they're called osteoderms. This animal had them. Now, it's relatively slow. It's probably not a fast animal. But the interesting thing about it is that it seems to have the ability to either get up and walk on its hind legs or walk on all fours. Its front legs are not as long as its back legs. So when it walked, it doesn't stand up and walk like a human with its head way up in the air. Instead, what it probably did is it walked with its body straight out but its front legs didn't reach the ground. They just kind of swung in front of it as it walked. Or if it wanted to feed, it could certainly drop down on all fours and probably walk on all fours. But when it was hunting, it's probably hunting on two legs, meaning it probably could move its quickest when it's getting up and walking on two legs. Now, this, again, in the name, the name crocodile is in its name, but it doesn't appear that this animal is made for living in the water. It's probably not aquatic. It probably doesn't hunt in the water, probably doesn't like the water. It's not really made for that sort of thing, I don't think. When you look at this animal, it doesn't. It, its head is too big and square almost, meaning that swimming through the water would be difficult because it's not, it's not built like a crocodile or an alligator with the long skinny snouts or the rounded snouts. Those are made for moving through the water. Like the reason why a boat in the front comes to a point is because it helps it move through the water easier if a boat was square in the front it would be impossible to move it it would just it wouldn't go very fast so looking at the looking at the skeleton of postasuchus i do not believe that this animal is aquatic or even semi-aquatic meaning i don't think it spends any time in the water could it swim probably so probably almost any animal i can think of can swim porcupines can swim cows can swim Elephants can swim, rhinoceros can swim. They're not great swimmers, but when they need to, they can. So this animal, in my opinion, is not a swimming animal. It is a terrestrial animal. It spends its time on land, hunting anything it could catch. You look at the size of those teeth, man, those are, those are cracking teeth. Those are big, strong, powerful teeth. And it's got a head almost like a Rottweiler. A big, powerful head with really big muscles. This thing is going to be able to pretty much take on anything. In my opinion, the only thing Postasuchus feared was a larger, hungrier Postasuchus. That's the only thing I think it would be afraid of. It lived at a time it lived with Coelophysis. It lived with a variety of different dinosaurs. 
I believe that it was ultimately outclassed by these other dinosaurs. Let me explain what that means. When you talk about the class of an animal, you're talking about its ability, where it fits in nature. Remember an earlier uh, podcast, I talked to you about the balance of nature, that every animal has a job. Well, within the balance of nature, you constantly have plant eaters trying to adapt to be able to eat more plants. You have plants that are adapting, trying to figure out how to stop from being eaten, either by making their leaves poisonous or growing thorns. And then you have meat eaters trying to outcompete other meat eaters for the same food source. Not everybody gets along in the environment. Plant eaters don't get along with other plant eaters in some cases. So being outclassed means somebody comes along and does your job better than you and slowly can figure out how to get rid of you. Coelophysis is not going to take on a postosuchus. It makes no sense whatsoever. That's like a little chihuahua trying to take on a grizzly bear. It just doesn't work. So you don't take on your prey or you don't take on your rival head first. There's other ways to win the battle. There's other ways to win the war. Attacking head first is not always the best way. So what then could a coelophysis do to take on an animal like this? It's armored. It's got massive teeth. It could probably move sort of quickly, not too fast. It's heavy. So what is coelophysis going to do? Well, two things. Coelophysis is way faster, meaning coelophysis has a better opportunity to catch prey. Number one, you simply get to the food before postosuchus and you eat it all before it arrives. That's one way, but the other way, probably the best way, is find out where postosuchus laid its eggs. Find out where the nest is, because I doubt that postosuchus sits by the nest all day long. It's got to feed. Like, for instance, alligators and crocodiles will take care of their babies. They'll sit by the nest, but not 24-7. They've got to eat. And when you're gone, you sneak in and you dig up the nest and you eat the eggs. Because eating a baby postosuchus, if you're a coelophysis, is the only way you're going to take out a postosuchus. Inside the egg or right after it hatches, before the osteoderms get thick and strong. So attacking the babies and out hunting it may have been why postosuchus is no longer or was no longer around by the mid-Triassic, I mean, by the early Jurassic. Postosuchus didn't make it because it got outclassed by a better model. And that model were the dinosaurs. Dinosaurs figured out how to get around this massive predator, how to stay out of its jaws, how to stay out of its way, but how to get rid of it. If you know about Postosuchus or you'd like to learn more, I have a project for you if you are on our Facebook Dinosaur George Kids group. If you are in the Dinosaur George Kids Facebook group, here is a project if you would like one. I would like for you to draw me a picture of a postosuchus. You can find pictures online. I want you to draw a picture of a postosuchus, and I want you to draw a picture of a nest of eggs with coelophysis rushing in to grab eggs. I think that would be fun. Now, if you have a postosuchus toy, I'd love for you to set up a scene 
of your postasuchus may be taking on a different dinosaur. But I would like for all of you to do a little more research on postasuchus because, in my opinion, postasuchus is an absolutely amazing looking animal. It is not a dinosaur. It doesn't fit into the family of dinosaurs, but it has a relationship to them. And remember, if you're going to draw a postasuchus, either draw it walking on its back legs or you can draw it walking on all fours. Whatever you want to do. But if you would like a project, I would like for you to do that. Now, speaking of the Dinosaur George Kids Facebook group, that is something that's free that anybody can join. That's a place where you can post pictures, you can post little videos, you can post messages to me, you can even ask questions, and I try to get to it whenever I can. Speaking of questions, how about I answer a couple of Ask Dinosaur George questions? Do you have any questions about dinosaurs? Just ask Dinosaur George. You can post your questions on the Dinosaur George Kids Facebook page or click on the Dinosaur George podcast page at dinosaurgeorge.com. Questions are chosen at random and you can submit as many as you want. And now, here's Dinosaur George. All right, this first question comes from Ayash, who writes to say, was there a dinosaur that could shoot venom like a snake? And everyone knows you're El Stinko, so why do you pretend you're not? Thanks. Well, Ayanch, what did you say to me, kid? What do you mean everyone knows you're El Stinko? I don't know. Who, I don't even know who this El Stinko person is that everybody keeps talking about. I have never heard of... No one knows the identity of El Stinko. No one. Smarter than Batman. Stronger than Superman. Has better hair than Wonder Woman. No one knows the identity. <laughs> Was there any dinosaur that could shoot venom? Well, there's no evidence to support it, Ayansh. There's no way to know with any certainty right now because that evidence doesn't exist. Now, dinosaurs are related to reptiles. And reptiles certainly have the ability to produce venom with one group being able to spray it which is the spitting cobras, and they basically have a special kind of tooth where they spray the venom out. But no dinosaur that's ever been found, to my knowledge, has anything like that. Their teeth are not like those of a snake. So therefore, it is unlikely that any of them had the ability to actually shoot venom. I know in the Jurassic World series, they make the Lophosaurus do that, but as everyone knows, that is strictly pretend. That's fiction. And there's no evidence to support that. So I don't believe that any of them did. It would certainly be interesting and it wouldn't be like, for instance, if somebody discovered that one of them could, I don't think you'd see paleontologists go, what? I think paleontologists would go, hmm, you know what? That makes sense because of the relationship with reptiles. But there's no evidence to support it at this time. And I'm not El Stinko, so stop saying that, you rotten kid. All right, this question comes from Ben and Will. Did saber-toothed tigers live in the desert or in colder, snowier climates? Great question, Ben and Will. Uh, by the way, Ayanch and Ben and Will are all uh, members of the Patreon Club. So, um, did they live in the desert? Well, you know what? They probably did not live in a desert and they probably weren't made for living in cold, snowy areas. Instead, 
the evidence suggests that they lived in areas that are called the plains. Now, there's a difference between a desert and a plain. Not, I'm not talking about an airplane. I'm talking about the plains. An airplane. Plain is spelled different than plains where animals live. Plains are more like there's trees. There's lots and lots of bushes and vegetation, but there's not tons of trees. It's not a forest. Like if you were standing out on the plains, you might see a few trees, but mostly you would see tall grass. That's where I think saber-tooth preferred to live. And that's probably the reason why they live there is it allowed them to hunt. Like African plains. Look at the African plains. Yes, during the dry season, it could look like a desert, but during the regular season, there's lots of plant, lots of grass. That's why animals live there, because there's plenty to eat. And so they would have lived in the open plains area because the grass would allow them to hide and sneak up closer to an animal. So it would allow them the ability to sneak up to get close enough to attack. It does not appear that they are made for living in really cold, snowy environments. There's no evidence to suggest that either. I think they are spending their time in the open plains and not in a desert or a snowy climate. Good question, guys. All right. Martin Soros Rex wants to know, what was the biggest dinosaur skull? And then says, please. And thank you. Very good manners, Martin Soros. Martin Soros, very good uh, manners. I'm very proud of you. So the biggest skull that I'm aware of happens to be one of Torosaurus. Torosaurus. That is a big cousin of Triceratops, a Ceratopsian. But to my knowledge, if you include the frill, or some people call it a shield, that is the biggest skull that's ever been found. It belongs to Torosaurus. Now, um, there's other dinosaurs with big heads, Giganotosaurus, Carcharodontosaurus, Tyrannosaurus. They have big heads. But the biggest, in my opinion, belongs to Torosaurus. That's what I believe. Very good question. All right. Uh, now, these next questions, those all came from my Patreon club. These next questions are those that people had submitted through our website. Hi, Dinosaur George. My name is Joshua N. I'm from Idaho Falls, uh, Idaho. My question for you is how fast could Tyrannosaurus move? First of all, Joshua, nice to have you with us. That's a good question. Uh, it's, it's very difficult to understand the speed of a prehistoric animal. Scientists certainly have information that they can use to estimate the speed. And with living animals today, we can witness their speed because we see them. But here's a problem with that. Even being able to see how fast an animal can run. Watching an animal run doesn't mean that animal is running as fast as it can or wants to. You're simply looking at it running and you might think, okay, well, that's as fast as it can go. Not necessarily true. Elephants are a prime example. When I was a kid, it was thought that elephants were very slow animals. But when you see elephants running, they can outrun a human. They're fast. Hippos are another example. Hippos are crazy fast. But to look just at their skeleton, you would never suspect it. So with scientists, all they have to go on is skeletons. Now, footprints help. If, if they have footprints, they can at least estimate the speed the animal is traveling. But again, does it mean that's as fast as it wanted to go? Or is, is that as fast as it could go? Or is that just as fast as it wanted to go? So when it comes to dinosaurs like Tyrannosaurus rex, 
First of all, you look at its sheer size and you think, okay, look, this thing is huge. It's not going to be meant for speed. But then you got to look around at the animals it's living with. Other than Ankylosaurus, most of its prey is relatively quick. Or probably was. So Tyrannosaurus has to be able to catch something. It cannot make its living walking up and hoping you stay still long enough for it to grab you. So I think it's got the ability to move quickly. And what I believe, uh, Joshua, is that it could move quickly when it wanted to, but probably not for a real long time. It's not made for long distance running, probably. So it could probably move really fast when it needed to. Look at an alligator. Look at a crocodile. Man, those things are quick. Like a crocodile laying out on the, lay, laying out on the shore while it's um, uh, sunning itself. And then a predator walks up like a lion or an elephant, something that it fears. An elephant's not a predator, but something that it fears. They can spin their body around and be in that water in less than a second. And you look and you go, man, that, that's going to be slow moving because they walk slow on land. And you go, man, that thing can't move very fast. And suddenly, boom, they take off. That's what I believe Tyrannosaurus Rex is capable of doing. I believe Tyrannosaurus Rex, at a moment's notice, could take off at an incredibly high rate of speed. It couldn't sustain it very long, but it could certainly do it. And I think it could turn very quickly, too. So in answer to your question, uh, Joshua, uh, how fast can Tyrannosaurus Rex move? Fast enough to have been able to survive on this planet for millions of years. To be able to survive and pass your genes on to the next generation to ensure there's more baby T-Rexes, You've got to be capable of doing whatever it takes to survive in your environment. So you look at the entire environment and you come to the conclusion, I do, that this animal is made for very quick, short bursts of speed. I think it was faster than we might think. All right, this question comes from Jack Raptor, who's 10 years old, who lives in Maryland. Hi, Dinosaur George. I was wondering, is Dromaeosaurus, is, does Dromaeosaurus have the killing claw on the first, second, or third toe? Thanks, El Stinko. Well, Jack Raptor, thank you for writing that, and thank you for asking. So, Drome, what did you call me? What did you say to me? You rotten kid. You rotten child. How dare you? How dare you say that I am this El Stinko person? I have never even heard of the No one knows the identity of El Stinko. No one. So which toe is it on? It's on the inside toe. So that means that if it's standing there with its feet together and you are under its body, it would be the toe on the inside. It's the inside toe. All raptors have their inside toe is their killing claw. It's the inside one, the one towards the other foot. So if you have three toes... One toe is away from the animal. One toe is pointing the inside. It's the inside toe. And Dromaeosaurus, really cool dinosaur. I like Dromaeosaurus a lot. I think Dromaeosaurus is a pretty, pretty remarkable animal. Very remarkable animal. Okay. Uh, Matthias, age eight from Mobile, Alabama says, dear dinosaur George, on October 14th, 2022, I went camping. Very exciting, Matthias. Uh, that's very exciting. I hope you enjoyed it. I love camping. I, oh, when I was a kid, especially when I was little, 
my family, we didn't have a lot of money. So when we took a vacation, we weren't able to stay in hotels. We had to sleep in tents. I loved it. It was the greatest thing in the world to go from campsite to campsite. We just traveled nonstop and got to see everything and sleeping under the stars. And, oh, I loved it. So I hope you and your family enjoyed it well as well, my friend. Thank you so much. All right. And then Kai, age 10 from Rochester, New York. You said that we can tell how old a fossil is by the age of the dirt layer. Where does the new dirt come from? Is the earth gaining dirt? What a brilliant question, Kai. What a brilliant question. Are rocks still being formed? Um, is there new dirt? Or is it the same old dirt everywhere? Well, the answer to both of those questions is, yes, there is new dirt, and yes, there are new rocks being formed. But it takes thousands of years. Now, the way dirt can be made is rocks that are exposed at the surface, the wind and water and freezing temperatures and hot temperatures can cause rocks to break, to slowly disintegrate and turn into dirt. Rocks that are sitting at the surface will not be here in another five or six or 800 years. They will have been turned to dust by the weather. Rocks that are forming in the center of the earth continuously get pushed up. So a thousand years from now, people standing in the spot you're standing in right now will be standing on a different layer of dirt than you are. Either more dirt blew in and buried it or dirt blew away and uncovered it. But whatever the case is, dirt is constantly being made by the erosion of rocks that are exposed at the surface. It's constantly being made. Um, I'll tell you something that's amazing. One of the videos that I enjoy watching on YouTube is videos of people that use metal detectors to go find coins and artifacts from the Civil War. What's really amazing to me is how deep underground they dig to get to those artifacts, like a button from a shirt or a bullet from an old gun or a cup that somebody drank out of during the Civil War. These things are buried under three or four or five or six feet of dirt. That doesn't mean that during the Civil War, people dug a hole and threw those in there. That means they dropped them on the surface. But erosion of the rocks and dirt around them have buried them under all of that dirt. That dirt was not there when they were there. But erosion, that's where rocks have been slowly broken up into tiny grains of sand and dirt. Those things buried them. So that's still happening today and it will happen forever because that's the way our planet make, is made. What a very, very good question. That's a very interesting question, Kai. Nicely done. I like that one a lot. All right, let's, uh, let's jump over to the Dinosaur George Kids Facebook group page real quick and let's see what's going on here. Let me take a look at some of what we got here. Okay, uh, I just posted my schedule of where my traveling museum is going to be. So if you live in Texas, you can go there and you can look at it and you can find out if I'll be coming into your area. We welcomed a bunch of new uh, group club members. Thank you all for joining. We appreciate that very much. 
I posted information about my next Patreon club lesson. If you would like to become a Raptor or T-Rex member of Patreon, um, the next lesson is going to be October the 29th and October the 28th. I'm doing this lesson twice. It's on a dinosaur named Gorgosaurus. That information is there. All right. What have we got? Titanus Stephen Boa. Uh, <laughs> his parents posted a really cool picture in Abilene, Texas at the Zubu. He was dressed up as a Dilophosaurus. That looks great. It looks like you guys had a good time. Thank you for posting. That is amazing. My friend Tori, the person who inspired today's feature creature, she posted a lot of her collection. You guys want to see the the Velociraptor skull she bought? Go online and look at it. You can see the picture of that Velociraptor she bought. All right, let's see. Uh, this is so cool. Leo, who's six years old, posted a video of him wearing his Dilophosaurus costume that he's going to wear for Halloween, and he is cruising around. That video is great, by the way. That's I like that very much. That's very, very cool. Let me see if 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 he was making any dinosaur noise. Let's hear it. <laughs> nice. He even made the Dilophosaurus sound and then spit venom right on my camera. Way to go, kid. Now I got to clean up my camera. All right, let's see. Uh, here's another really cool video. Let's see what this one is. Oh, now these guys made a video. This is the Watson family made what almost looks like a movie this is great that's very good film quality by the way but the watson family did a good job this is a great video that they recreated jurassic park and they said you are el stinko well thank you guys so much what did you just say to me okay let me tell you something the next video you're gonna see is me coming in your house and chasing you around because you called me el stinko i don't even know who that person is no one Knows the identity of El Stinko. No one. Love the video, you guys. Uh, this is really cool. Richard Soros Rex is watching my old video, one of my Jurassic Fight Club videos. You can see them on YouTube. What a great picture. Mom, thank you so much for posting the picture. I'm so very glad that Richard Soros Rex enjoys it. Enjoys it. Thank you so very much. And thank you for the kind words. You guys are so kind. All right, what else we got? We got Caden, who had his first walkthrough museum today. Caden, this is great. These are great pictures, by the way. And you look like a paleontologist. You look exactly like a paleontologist. You've got your vest on. What a great, oh, that's so cool. I hope you enjoy doing that. That is crazy cool. All right, what else do we have here? Aaron would like to know if this is a dinosaur tooth from a small dinosaur. Well, it sure looks like one. Aaron, that looks to me like a dinosaur called Humanosaurus rex. I don't know what that tooth is, but that's crazy cool. It's nice and white. Whatever it belonged to, either the dinosaur or the person who lost that tooth brushed their teeth. I'm very proud of you because that's what you're supposed to do. It looks absolutely great. Roanosaurus Rex created an epic dino battle in the garden. Oh, this is great. Very good. Roanosaurus Rex, this is great pictures. And man, that is an epic battle. It looks like everybody's there. That's really, really cool. Uh, and this is great. Gracie Soros Rex says, hi, Dinosaur George, El Stinko. It's my birthday and I get to ride a T-Rex. Well, Gracie Soros, that is the, or Gracie Rex, that is the coolest thing. It looks like you, what did you call me? What did you? Oh, kid, you don't even want to know how much trouble you're in. You don't even want to know how much trouble you're in. <laughs> 
Angus wrote and asked me if I could do a, pi- a podcast on Tyrannotitan and one on Maposaurus. Both very good suggestions, Angus. Very good suggestions. I like that very, very much. And uh, this is Fred, uh, Fred Allosaurus, which, of course, is my favorite dinosaur name. And, See what you made. And we also have Blue right here. And we have the Triceratops and the Hybrid Quadrus. Oh. Actually, the Hybrid T-Rex. Nice. And then, and then, and then. And then, bye, George. See you, buddy. Thank you for the video, Fred Allosaurus. Love your name. Love your video. What a good job. I love your shirt, by the way. Thank you, buddy, for taking time to do that. That was very, very kind. Uh, Ankalatesh wanted to see his paintings. Wow. Wow. This is really, really a good. This is great. This is great. Um. And Adish, uh, I think it's Adish, not Atesh, it's Adish. I think it's Adish. I want to make sure I get that right. Uh, listen, thank you so very much, uh, Dad, for, for posting the kind words. I'm glad that you guys enjoy listening together. That makes that makes this so much more fun, knowing that parents are spending time with their kids doing, listening to this podcast. Thank you. That's very, very good art. That's really, really good art. Very impressive. Very impressive. All right, uh, let's see. Uh, what do we got next? We have got, we have got, oh no. We've got some. Who would win? What if two different prehistoric creatures fought? Who would win? T-Rex versus a giant wolf? Raptor versus Terror Bird? Spinosaurus versus Triceratops. You choose the animals, and Dinosaur George will size them up and pick a winner. Now, get ready. It's time to find out who would win. Hey, before I do this, who would win? I got to mention one other thing. This goes a shout out to Jackson. Uh, Jackson and his mom came to Trader's Village and took some really cool pictures. And those pictures are now found on my web, on the Dinosaur George Kids uh, Facebook group. Uh, Jackson, I am so sorry that I missed seeing you. I wish so much that I could have seen you, but we were out of town with my traveling museum. But uh, love the pictures you posted, Mom. Thank you so much for posting those pictures. Those look absolutely great. And thank you so much for doing that. That is really cool. Uh, and then, oh, by the way, uh, uh, Cedrosaurus wants to share his fossil collection. Hey, this is nice. This is uh, Korax Shark's Tooth. Great collection, by the way. This is great. I uh, just wanted to mention those two because I forgot to mention them when I was over on the Dinosaur George Kids uh, group page. So let's do some Who Would Wins. Now, these Who Would Wins are all coming from T-Rex members of the Patreon Club. So let's go. Milo, age nine, says T-Rex versus a Velociraptor versus a Stegosaurus versus a Spinosaurus versus an Ankylosaurus. Well, when you look at all these animals, none of them are going to make it to the final round other than Tyrannosaurus Rex and Ankylosaurus. T-Rex is going to beat Spinosaurus, in my opinion. Velociraptor is going to damage Stegosaurus, but he's not going to kill him. Stegosaurus is going to win that battle. T-Rex is going to sit back and watch Ankylosaurus and Stego go at it. 
Stegosaurus's spikes are deadly, but not strong enough to get through the armor of Ankylosaurus. So in this melee, this group of fighters, I think two emerge for the final round. That is going to be Tyrannosaurus Rex and Ankylosaurus. And I've said this before, and I will say it again. The king of dinosaurs, the only thing it has to deal with that can't overcome is an Ankylosaurus, an adult Ankylosaurus. If it is fighting an adult Ankylosaurus, I'm sorry. I love Tyrannosaurus Rex, but Anki has got too much weapons, too much body armor, and I think it's going to swing that club. And if it hits Tyrannosaurus in the leg, Rex is going down. Rex isn't getting up. The champion is Ankylosaurus. Great one. All right, Jude, age seven, says Spinosaurus versus Scorpius Rex. All right, Spinosaurus always has an advantage over a fictional dinosaur because Spinosaurus, built in its mind, in its brain, is generation after generation of of passed-on behavior. Behavior is something that is built in our brains. Let me give you guys an example of a behavior that I find fascinating. Sometimes when you come to the the my my museum and store at Trader's Village in San Antonio, sometimes we are there with a baby T-Rex. Yeah, I mean a baby raptor. And yes, it's cha-cha-cha, the rottenest animal that ever lived. Sometimes we have that dinosaur out and kids can come up, come, come up and pet her. But little babies, when they see cha-cha-cha, they usually back away from it. They get scared because they know that that animal has sharp teeth and they should stay away from it. Nobody had to teach a newborn baby to be afraid of a dinosaur. Newborn babies don't even know what a dinosaur is. And yet in their brain, their brain is telling them that thing is dangerous. Stay away from it. So there are behaviors that we are, that are in our minds passed on from generation to generation. Dinosaurs would be the same way. A Spinosaurus would know how to fight certain animals. It could look at an animal and it could figure out that's the part to stay away from. That's the part to attack. That's why animals are successful. That's the problem with when an animal meets an animal it's never seen before. The first thing they got to do is figure the other one out. Where should I attack? The plant eater's thinking, where's it going to attack? What do I need to do? So Scorpius Rex wouldn't have any of those things because there's no generations that come before it. So right away, a Spinosaurus is going to have an advantage. Now, Scorpius Rex, from what I understand from the uh, TV series, is Scorpius Rex has those spikes on its tail, which would certainly give it an advantage as a predator. But I would still say, in my opinion, an animal that has the benefit of learned behavior is always going to have an advantage over an animal that was made in a laboratory. I would give this fight to Spinosaurus, but that's a very good battle, and I liked it. Fiona, ah, Fiona, age 11, says, who would win? Dinosaur George with stink bombs and a gun versus four Tyrannosaurus Rexes versus one Allosaurus. All right, first of all, Fiona, the fact that I have my stink bombs means I don't need any other weapon. Thank you very much. No dinosaur is going to be able to withstand the smell that comes from my underarms. None. And let's say just by luck, 
that that T-Rex and Allosaurus have a stopped up nose because allergies have been bothering them? Well, then all I have to do, child, is pull my shoes off. And when that smell reaches their nose, even if their head is stopped up from allergies, it will be instantly cleared out. They will get a gigantic whiff and they will both scream and run the other way. So, Miss Fiona, who asked that question, yes, child, my stink bombs are that strong. If you don't believe me, come by and see me one day. I will raise up my arm, stand in front of a fan, and when the wind blows on you, you will not be able to stand there. Thank you. The end. All right. My assistant, Noah F., says Dilophosaurus versus Cryolophosaurus. Always good ones, Noah. You always have good ones because Noah always finds two animals that are similar in build, similar in size. And that makes for a much more interesting who would win because when you're when you're you know, when you're picking a giant animal and a small animal, well, that's a pretty easy one. But when you pick animals that are relatively the same size, so let's look at Dilophosaurus and Cryolophosaurus. Both of these dinosaurs, in my opinion, because of their headgear, their thin crest on their head, thin crest to me suggests that the animal is not made for combat. Because it would be too easy to break those crests because they're very thin. And those crests are definitely for something. Animals don't grow things like that just because they're bored. They are, there's a function. There is a reason why they have a crest on their head. So they don't want to get themselves in a situation where they could break or damage that crest. So what that tells me is they're probably not necessarily willing to fight other members of the carnivore family. What I mean by that, Noah, is let's say two rival Dilophosauruses meet. They're from the same family. They both understand the unwritten rules of how you behave in a fight with something of your own species. There's a lot of animals like that. You know, like deer with big horns. When, when two bucks, male deers meet to fight, well, you think, why don't they just run up and stab each other in the side and wipe the other one out? Because those aren't the rules of survival. Fighting doesn't mean you're trying to kill your opponent. Fighting means you're trying to show who's the strongest. So they follow rules. They're not trying to kill the other one. So if two rival Dilophosauruses met, they would know. You don't put your head down and come running in because you're liable to damage your frill. I might break your frill. You might break mine. That's not what we're fighting about. We're fighting to see who's strongest. So what they might have done is come up to each other and maybe got close and pushed and shoved to try to see who was the strongest. Now, fighting for your life is something different, and that would be the case with Crylophosaurus and Dilophosaurus. Whatever rules they have in their species to survive, those rules would go out the window because now you're fighting with an animal that doesn't care about your rules. It doesn't follow your rules. It doesn't come up and put its arms next to yours and push and shove to see who's stronger. It's going to try to kill you. So rules are out the window with these two animals, and there could be a chance that they are either one or both are going to break or destroy their frills, but that's survival. So in this particular case, I think Crylophosaurus, based on everything I've seen, has got a little heavier build, which would give it an advantage when fighting something like Dilophosaurus. I think Crylophosaurus has three fingers right. Dilophosaurus, I know, has four. 
I don't know if that's much of an advantage. I don't, I don't think that's a great advantage, but it could be enough to sway this fight. But I'm going to give this one to Krylophosaurus simply because I think it's got the weight category beat, and I think it's going to be the winner. But this is a great question. Very, very good, good challenge. All right. Charlotte Malamegalodon says Megalodon versus Mosasaur. Like this battle as well. Two sea creatures separated by millions of years, but they both are made for hunting and fighting. Anytime an animal is challenged a Megalodon, Megalodon has the ultimate advantage, and that is it can't drown like a air breather can. If Megalodon can just hold the Mosasaurus by the tail and keep it from going up and getting air, the Mosasaur is going to die. Or when the Mosasaur goes back up to the surface to breathe, Megalodon can attack. Mosasaur would be completely helpless at that particular moment in time. Now, the advantage for the Mosasaur is it's going to be way faster. It's going to be able to turn much quicker than Megalodon. So Megalodon is just going to use its brute size and strength which gives it a massive advantage. But I believe at the end, the deciding factor in this particular battle is that Megalodon does not have to come to the surface to breathe. And that gives it that one shot at being the winner. All right. Teddy Saurus Rex wants to know Dimitrodon versus Sarcosuchus. Um, well, Teddy Saurus, and thank you for your manners, Teddy Saurus. This is a good one. This is a good one. Dimitrodon versus Sarcosuchus. Size goes to Sarcosuchus. Bite force, Sarcosuchus. Arm reach, Sarcosuchus. Sarcosuchus, in my opinion, has everything it needs to very quickly and easily win against Dimetrodon. Now, Dimetrodon's got a very powerful bite, and it appears that Dimetrodon may have been semi-aquatic, being able to get into the water and swim. But Sarcosuchus is coming from a family that absolutely absolutely has the ability to live in water because that's what it does. So, hey, wait, I said arm reach on Sarcosuchus. I'm sorry, that's not correct. Um, uh, it doesn't have arm length, but it's got size. It's got a bigger bite force, a larger mouth. So in my opinion, Sarcosuchus would easily be able to defeat Dimetrodon, although Dimetrodon could probably swim circles around it, maybe because Sarcosuchus is so big, it'd take longer to turn its body. But this is a tough one, but I'm going to give it to Sarcosuchus. And then finally, uh, Rhea Rex says T-Rex versus Spinosaurus. Battle of Titans, two big ones, two gigantically powerful animals. As long as the fight was happening in the water, Spinosaurus would have an advantage. But the fight isn't going to happen in water because Tyrannosaurus Rex is not going to venture in deep water because that's not where it's made to hunt and, and survive. So if it can get Spinosaurus to come out of the water, T-Rex immediately. But let's say Spinosaurus or T-Rex is so infuriated that it chases Spinosaurus into the water. If it does, then Spinosaurus simply has to grab him and drag him under. Because Spinosaurus spends more time in the water, it would suggest that its lungs are probably better designed for holding its breath longer, much like a crocodile. So a crocodile can grab an animal and drag it under, and it can hold its breath longer, and therefore the animal drowns. Well, I think Spinosaurus would do the same thing to a Tyrannosaurus Rex. I believe it absolutely would. 
All right, my friends, that is it for this episode. If you'd like to, please go to our website, dinosaurgeorge.com, and become a Patreon Club member. I hope you will consider doing it. Remember October 29th and 30th, the Megalodon event, where you now, not only can we, will we let you stand in the mouth of Megalodon and take your picture, but now Traders Village is bringing out a professional photographer who will take your picture, print it, and put it in a frame. Remember also, I'll be taking my podcast equipment out there on the 29th and 30th of this month. And if you want to come in and hear your voice on a podcast, come on in and do it. Store on my website is up and running. You can now order things through my website store. Right now, it's only fossils, but I will continue to add things. To everyone out there, parents, thank you for allowing me to come into your house and spend time with you, your children, your family. It's an honor to be able to do that, and I take that role very seriously. This is a family-friendly podcast, and it will remain that way. If you'd like to join the Dinosaur George Kids Facebook group, you can do that. Once again, family-friendly, safe environment. To everybody out there, be kind, be nice, tell your family you love them. Yes, even your brothers and sisters. I know that's like the hardest thing in the world, but you need to do it because they all need to know you love them. Take care, everybody. Have a great afternoon. If you are listening to this while you're getting ready for school, hurry up, you're running late. to Dinosaur George Kids. Join the Dinosaur George Kids Facebook group, become a member of our Patreon club and check out our website store for cool fossils, rocks and crystals. Visit dinosaurgeorge.com for details. Until next time, keep digging for knowledge. Yeah, yeah.